0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Operations and Optimization podcast with James and myself. And uh, we have an eminent guest here today, Professor Johan Schöblom. And we already had a small chat here before we started, I mean, about pain at the dentist or whatever. But that's not going to be the subject today because you have a long academic career behind you from, uh, let's say, the NTNU uh, Ugelsta Laboratory. And both James and myself, we've, I mean, we've seen your your work in terms of all the, let's say, papers and books and, and of course, heard much about you from um, customers when they look into, let's say, porosis chemistry, the emulsions, colloid chemistry, etc. So, um, yeah, so uh, as such, Joan, how, how does it feel being, let's say, out of the academic world? Well,
1: it actually is not that bad, you know, uh, when you when you look back and uh, say that you have been active over 40, 40, 45 years, then um, you you say to yourself, perhaps it's time that you do something else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I think I have uh, come into that mood now.
0: You are. OK. So uh, uh, if you think back, I mean, almost 45 years, I mean, There's probably so many achievements and and memories from that time, but anything that stands out, what do you think that that was really something what you were able to achieve?
1: Well, um, of course, what you have, what I have experienced is, of course, that um, I have uh, get the credit from some people for what I have done Um, in the appointment to professor in um, in, in Bergen in Norway and in Trondheim. And uh, what perhaps was, was very unique in Trondheim was that I was invited. And that was the first time in, in, in the faculty of NTNU that they invited somebody to, to come in and uh, become a professor. And uh, the deal was that when they had a faculty meeting, not one single voice could be raised against the, uh, the suggestion. And that went through, and, uh, amazingly. Yes. Yeah. In
0: academia, that that is really a surprise. Yeah. <clears throat> it is. And yeah. It, yeah. Hopefully, they knew what they were doing there, you when they invited you.
1: Well, <laughs> they had no chance to
0: regret it anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. It was too late. It was too late. Yeah. So. Thanks. I think, but let's say oil and gas. And and, uh, you've been working a lot in that field. And of course, if you look at operations, what we are, let's say, uh, looking at also here in in, in the podcast, but emulsions, I think it's, you know, you hear a lot about oil, water, water in oil. What's what's the thing with all these emulsions in in, in production facilities, oil and gas?
1: The problem is, of course, that um the emulsions, it's a assembly of droplets, and uh, when you increase the concentration of the droplets, you change the properties of the, of the fluids. So uh, when you raise the concentration, let's say out to 30%, 40% and so on, uh, the viscosity will increase, immensely so. And um, that causes a lot of problems with the transport, for instance, with the separation of, and, uh, in all aspects where you need the mobility of the fluids. And then, of course, uh, what we are all occupied with is, is in a separator. What is the main thing in a separator? The main thing is that you have a fast separation and good quality of what you separate. Okay. And if you involve an emulsion in the oil phase, then you have a problem because you disperse the water, and then the quality of the oil phase is uh, is low. Mm-hmm. So um, that that raises a problem to, to solve the problem to solve the emerging problem and um, raise the, the the quality of what you what you produce.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I think James, you you've seen that very much yourself too in I mean that
2: that I think it's one of the biggest challenges. I think. We always have when we're trying to develop equipment and over the field life as well, how to handle the emulsions and the different types of emulsions and what we're actually doing in terms of either utilising process to try and break it or utilising chemistry to try and break it, that we can actually sometimes make it even worse or later on. But I think the biggest problem that it is very often, and I think you, have, you know, I would probably say that the biggest problem we have at the beginning is actually trying to characterise it to start with. that is one of the biggest challenges I've always seen is when you do your your field development plan you always have your oil production curve you have a gas production curve you have your water production curve but typically you don't see water for the first couple of years so it's running along nicely and suddenly you start to get small amounts of water breakthrough and that's where the problem is because it's with small amounts of water it's highly dispersed it's very very difficult then to use technology or chemistry at least to try and break it because the droplets are so far apart but also it seems to come as a surprise to most people that we're going to get water and they don't seem ready for it at any point and that's one of the challenges i think we've always had in this, this industry is that when you take your samples doing your well testing and, you, and you, you take your oil samples, you have some formation water analyses and you have this, but you don't really have any indication of what the emulsions are going to be. Are the emulsions actually coming from the reservoir? Are they actually there present? Or are they being created because of the shear coming through the rock, up through the well bore area and into the process itself? So are we actually manufacturing these through what we're actually doing as opposed to them being naturally there? And the problem is that we can never really I don't, I've never really been worked on a field so far that has ever been able to look at real life emulsions coming yes. back from the well. Even if they're manufactured ones that we've done or looked at the others, it's very, very difficult to get this because when you're doing drill testing, you know, you your well testing, even if you are there's a lot of money involved in trying to keep that rig running there and they want to get the wells completed. So no one's going to run it for X number of weeks or whatever to get a real proper. Um, understanding of all the fluids that are gonna come back in again. So people put contingencies into the engineering side to try and cope with those. But then as we've discussed on the other ones, you don't you don't really decide that that um, field is gonna be designed for the for life of field. It's designed for whatever somebody's got for the short term. And that's the biggest problem we also have is that you design your separators based upon a certain retention time, certain flow rate, certain pressure, et cetera part of your process but if at some point you have something coming through that's not going to work in that process you're kind of stuck so you're then stuck with everything else but it's it's the understanding i think in the initial phases that causes a lot of problems for people and just any predictions
1: i think james do you are completely right there and uh, when we look at the margins we must uh, take into consideration that uh Everything that is happening in the emulsion is time-dependent. So, if you start early in the process, you have one kind of emulsion, and then gradually the emulsion nature is going to change, which means that um, the droplet uh, concentration is going down if you have a collection. And uh, then, also, of course, uh, what is also happening is that the droplet size distribution is changing radically during the processing so at the beginning and at the end you had two different conditions yeah <clears throat>
0: but also if, if we then look at oil production today and uh, a lot from mature fields james, james you mentioned the uh, water breakthroughs mm-hmm. et cetera, and that means that okay there's a high water content in in, in the production flow a lot of emulsions and then you know everyone wants to kind of say oh but we're going to do let's say digital transformation we're going to have a high operational efficiency isn't that counteracting it i mean all, all these emulsions and the stability of those or lacking data
1: well, I think uh, you at Roxol, you uh, are addressing a very important problem when you look at the separation. You are putting ice or sensors into the into the tank and then you have a good idea of what is really happening within the time of the separation process. and um, that is of course everything what is happening with the layer and the layer measurements and the layer levels, is depending on emulsions and the emulsion condition what is the emulsions are they stable are they not stable do you have a collision so do you have a separation if you have that uh, then you you alter the, the levels what you have in the separator and it's very nice to see how you can follow that very easily you guys yeah uh,
0: and uh yeah sorry james maybe you had a comment there it's fine
2: no i was gonna say i mean i think that that i think it's a bit there but particularly with mature fields the, is the by having that information as well then you can run the field better and the problem i have i think with a lot of mature fields is yes you have water you have wells which have very very high water cuts um, but if they have if you've also got a problem with emulsions already inside the system adding more water is the last thing you want to do because again that's reducing your oil time or your residence time for the oil in order to come clean because that's really what you're looking for you're looking for clean oil so you can get it exported and make money on it but you're also trying to keep your environmental impact as low as possible from making sure you produce water is within specification. So if you're adding more and more water to it, again, depending on the design e process, what it was originally designed for, which is originally designed to handle, um, you can actually then overload the system. So you can't break it out. Even though you've got predominantly a bulk water phase, you end up with a lot of water still being trapped because there isn't enough time and the oil layer thickness is too small in order for it to separate. But if you look at mature fields, the one thing you want to do is get your high water cut wells still flowing. because You've paid the money for them. You've done the work. From, okay, economically, they may not be, they may be paid back already, but they're still producing a viable product. So what do you do in order to do that part? And that's where the information part comes in, because you know operationally, you'll go to platforms and people will only run certain, they'll like to run certain well configurations because that's the one that gives them the least operational problem. And that's more of a a feel from their experience of what happens and how it operates. But if you can give them more information, perhaps there's ways of squeezing an extra few barrels a day through. I mean, a couple of extra barrels a day through a marginal field is significant in terms of payback and the economics for that field to continue as well.
0: Yeah. And maybe equipment hasn't been designed to, let's say, handle or treat all that water and the emulsion of it, of it. so uh, that creates a very inefficient process also can relate then to let's say the, the uh, carbon footprint etc and i think like what johan mentioned there with what we're doing at Rockwell, of course that we put ice to the uh, separator in that sense and um, if you actually look at north sea Oreda database Mm -hmm. Uh, the data from there and it's also been used in some uh, SPE articles on the Savvy separator. Mm -hmm. The main, how is it now, main cause of failure for separators and and critical process equipment as such is actually from instrumentation. Yes. Yes. More than 50 percent. But that that also goes back to some
2: of the design rules that we've introduced, design mistakes we've introduced and copied over the number of years. If you look at a typical separator, where does somebody locate the water outlet? You know, I've seen vessels that have water outlets in the first third, mm-hmm. which is a dangerous place. To have oh yes, it. yeah. Midpoint. It's a dangerous place to have it. You should be as close as you have where you get the potential to get out the water. But also the nozzle size is completely wrong. So you end up with vortexes being caused. You end up with emulsions and solids being. But also, that, well, that's absolutely, good. then you end up with solids building up as well, which has never been addressed. So you end up with.
1: So- you can't. Oh, yep. Yeah. Mika, do you think I can? Uh, you could answer one question? If you look at the separation and the history of separation, uh, the tanks have been intact for a very long time, and very little has been done with the instrumentation. Everyone has defined the problem. Everyone has seen that this is something that we should solve. But still, it has taken a lot of time before people really have gone in and done something with the tomography, for instance. Do you have any ideas why that is so?
0: How would I put this? I mean, probably James has his own version here too. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hear what he says. But I think, you know, oil field guys, what do you look at? Ah, you just try to be uh, practical. You, you think that, ah, but that's so difficult to, to monitor uh, in real time or get data. So a lot of manual work or oh, they, they uh, plan, they have planned shutdowns or they kind of try to mitigate that operational setting with, with let's say their best practices, et cetera. But I think we have to get away from all that manual work mm-hmm. and try to automate processes, but it's very difficult, but I think that that's the way to go. And, and why is tomography so, so late? Well, there's various types of tomography and, and, um, Our type with electrical tomography, sensing in the matter or fluid, is, of course, uh, we would say something unique and and patented. And uh, at the same time, oil and gas, that's a technology, uh, yeah, technology development or or applications and adaption that takes a very long time. So maybe many have not had that patience. Hmm. To go that and
1: way i don't know perhaps also if you look at what has happened during the re- during the recent years is that artificial intelligence has developed immensely so and that has also been a background where you can explain better what is happening in in a, in a, in a tank where you have a huge amount of data and i don't think that we have had the readiness to analyze that amount
0: of data before no, no. I mean, of course, you need good data, but I think definitely AI and machine learning is part of this. Because if we wouldn't apply that with our tomography, I would say, well, it would be much slower, and and uh, then you don't get that, let's say, really quick feedback and 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 capabilities to to um, utilize that. And that's just the first step to let's say get this type of technology to work that you you can see the level interfaces, oh, what's happening with the emulsion layer, et cetera. But I think where we're heading also is to go more into detail, into the process mining. What can we do with this data? Because what we hear from yeah, or, or, all of our customers, actually, I'm mean they want to kind of dig into the details here. This is so valuable for them. Yeah. Well,
2: I think the biggest problem is as well is that there's been – if you look at the traditional way we've done it, that this technology wasn't available a few quite a few years ago. So people put, did the best they had with what was available in the marketplace. The technology wasn't really there. I mean, we only really got into starting looking at profiling when we really started getting into the heavier types of crudes when obviously the nucleonic one came along, because there's issues associated with trying to find the differences between the oil density and the emulsion densities, which is very, very small and therefore the conventional technology didn't work. And then they realized, well, we can get get more information from this, and then the tomography came on, which is a a step further on. But the problem is that it goes back to, to day one in the fact that we have an industry which is designed upon the fact that we build new stuff and we put in something which we know has either worked previously, but sometimes that work has never really fed back into it once it's been operational about how that stuff actually worked. Because you know, you you design your platform, you you build it, it goes off, you do your commissioning, it works. Maybe you don't have water cut or issues for the first five years. So who captures that learning as well? And that's the other process we have. Our industry is terribly bad at knowledge transfer. We've had this discussion before. <laughs> Everyone's been on it, knowledge transfer is a bad thing in our industry because knowledge has always seemed to be in the power. In the fact that if you hire a knowledgeable individual, you potentially have to, to, to rise up and be paid more because you actually have inherent knowledge. But the company itself doesn't seem to be able to take that learning on board. I think with using the AI now in the upstream process, we are going to change that because the knowledge itself is actually going to be there and the information is going to be there and it's easier for everyone to start to see it. If you look at what they did with AI in the downstream or in the drilling side a few years, quite a few years ago, it's been it's been introduced quite a long time now, with the with the remote um, logging rooms, with all the data transfer while they're doing field development. There's a whole load of stuff that's been done, but it never progressed into the upstream part. Once it came to the surface side, we considered, you know, this 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 unwanted child. In the fact, it wasn't necessary for that side because we'll deal with it. Um, and yeah that was okay in the period of time when it was easy to, to build this stuff or build new fields or whatever but now we're not in that area anymore we're in the mature area now which now needs that we need to spend time collecting that data because as we've discussed before this is going to go on for quite a period of time now we still need this during the energy transition whatever we're going to do we're still going to need energy mix so we're still going to produce oil and gas other people think um we're still going to have it there so we need to produce it in the best way possible, with the minimal infrastructure, minimal impact, and the best operations, and that's where this comes in. So there is a learning curve, unfortunately, you know, because a lot of people have been into, you know, there's, there's been magic bullets suggested for a variety of different technologies for years. People said, oh, this will sort your problems out. Use this. This will work. This or that. And sometimes they've come up against it and said, hmm, no, it doesn't. Um, but that's also because we haven't really looked at where it should be deployed as opposed to just, yeah, that's a good idea, let's sell it there.
1: And uh, a question, of course, that uh, you set forward is, uh, when we now have these means, we have the good sensor, we have the, the computer uh, technology, we have a capacity, how will that influence the thinking of the separation? In what way will should we stay with the same tanks? Is that the, the, the concept? Should we develop uh, the, the process in, in some intelligent way? Now, when we have the means, we have much, much, much better means. Yeah. That, I mean, I think that, is, that is going to be a challenge. It will be.
2: I mean, even if you looked at what we did previously, and obviously there's been movements on with CFD, except we're doing multi-phase fl- flow dynamics. There's been a lot of things we've moved forward doing that part. But again, none of that realistically shows what happens in the real process. It's just... Again, it's theoretical because not only are we looking at you know just the oil, the water, that we've got other things coming through as well. You've got other types of organic chemistry coming through, with this biofilms, naphthenates, asphaltines, other things that are coming through waxes, scale, with all kinds of other things which are uh, it's a dynamic which are causing issues as well, and it's preventing separation, causing separation, causing buildups, and those you can't measure using those sort of things because we we, don't, we can't quantify them. We're actually having the eyes inside the vessel. We can start to quantify all the processes that come through. Even we don't know exactly what they are, but we can see how those things that are coming in are influencing the separation part so that we can start to design this better. And I think, you know, I mean, having my experience in the past of looking at wrongly designed internals or incorrectly designed or ones that are no longer fit for use because of the, the fluid, properties have changed or the fluid mix has changed you know it will be an interesting time now when people start to see what's actually going on and what they need to do and can we change it do we really need a separator that's 100 feet long and seven you know seven meters in diameter or do we need something which is different do we need a smaller knockout yes. do we need something that's going to be separate here do we need multi-chamber you know we've always had the ones about single dual inlets or dual exits, single inlets, we've had single inlet, single with a variety of different applications. And what is the best one? We've never really known, I don't think, until now.
1: What is uh, really challenging, James, is that um... With the, the developed sensor technology, we got also better ma- ways to, to evaluate how the DMLC fire, uh, for f- fires uh, work and um, the efficiency. Can you scale up the, the efficiency, the concentrations and so on? I mean, it, it, it's a completely new avenue for, for the chemistry.
2: I think that is, a, I think, I you mean, know, my background, I, mean, I was with, with Baker Hughes for a number of years, and I was with the Baker Petrolite on the chemical treatment side. I mean, in terms of that, part just looking at the formulation that goes into a new demulsifier for a particular field it may only work for a couple of years if we now understand how the ones that we have are working or not working what we need to do in order to treat that i think it'll make a big big difference given also the the registration that people need to go through now particularly in the Norwegian sector the UK sector and that if you want to bring on a new chemistry the amount of ecotox data you need to go through in order to get that product registered to be able to be used it can be months before we actually able to it and by the time yeah. you've got it registered the emulsion problem could be completely different so you've registered a product that may become obsolete very quickly or may not be the optimal one in the real system because again you're taking samples out you may do a small field trial you know there's a variety of things you can do in order to try and convince yourself And you need experts to do that part but obviously those experts are few and far between realistically as well so the things we can do in order to speed that process up and get people out of these problems i think is great so
1: chemical treatment, ideal. And um, also you can follow how rapidly you get rid of the water, so you don't have to process a huge quantities of water.
0: But I, I think that's a really interesting, let's say, challenge you're putting out there, Johan. Also that, well, actually, because now we are getting better data in real time. And so actually, should we just keep the processes as they have been? Because... Like James, what you mentioned with these oversized vessels. Yes. Because there's a lack of data and they think, okay, we put this safety factor on this. So it should work in some way. But actually, we can take the different approach now when we can trust the data and have more insights. So Mm -hmm. I think that could spin a lot of things. Let's say having data, how to do uh, process equipment design, how to, let's say, do the chemical cocktails mm-hmm. and a lot of other things. We yes. need this industry to be a bit bit more agile. Wrong word. Wrong especially word. especially no. Mika
1: if you if you look at the DM I mean what what are people doing in the labs? They are doing very simple bottle tests. Yes. And uh, that is something that they should come out from. I mean it's it's not the future, it's the past. And um, if you have a better way to evaluate the efficiency of the chemicals, you should absolutely implement it as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And I I,
1: use- I used to call it Flintstone technology mm-hmm. with, uh, lo- doing the, the bottle test. Yeah. I have even been quoted on that.
2: Yeah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> spent many many a happy evening bottle testing offshore. I'm quite happy because. Yes. Trust me, yes, shaking those things for hours and end does kill your arms, yeah. but also you know, just taking it when you actually think you've got a formulation, but then taking it for field trial and then trying to get the data back is always a problem as well, because we're also relying on the existing technology, which they're using for level indications, etc., to see if the vessel is working better than it was previously. And if you've got imperfect information from that side, then no matter what you're doing in terms of chemistry, you may not see the benefits anyway. So
0: this will be the other challenge. Yeah, and I I must... I mean, this is many years back, but talking about this Flintstone type of approach with bottle testing, I mean, I've been part of projects where the, let's say, operator, the oil energy company has taken their decisions based on the bottle test. Yes. In terms of how how the... about the separator sizing, separation efficiency, etc., And I think that's... Wow, okay. On a very... Thin basis of data, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes. Flintstone. It's a Flintstone.
2: <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> but also that if you look at it, it's one of the biggest expenditures for a lot of fields as well. And they have very limited information on it, um, which is a which is a real is a real problem for them. I mean, it is a gut feel, and that's also where we run into a problem because if you're continually tying back wells from parts of the field, you're trying to milk as much as you can from the reservoir. Then you've got a problem because the fluid composition is changing and then you're continually bottle testing or you're continually trying to do this and it's like mm, do you need to or is it what is it that's causing you the problem and i think with the information from inside the vessels then i think we'll be able to have a lot better understanding of what's happening and what we need to do to fix it In a minute, we're just throwing band-aids over stuff yeah. in the hope that eventually one of them will stick
0: So, where should we move then, Johan? The future. Where are we going? Well, hopefully forward.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: uh, what I have in mind, Mika, is of course that um, uh, we should discuss very in detail how the sensor and the sensor technology the the capacity to treat data and so on how that will influence different stages of the whole process when you start with the drilling when you have the exploration you have the first uh, oil samples that is decisive for how you plan the field and what kind of infrastructure you are building up and so on i think this is a huge job that that should be done but You have now something, you have an ace in the sleeve, and that gives you the power to to really say that we we think that we can influence drastically the whole process from A to E, and people will will listen to that.
0: You think so? Because, I mean, a few weeks back we had uh, uh, a good chat with uh, technologycatalog.com, Eric Neifeld, ex-Shell guy also, and I said that the future you have to be cost efficient and of course it will pay uh, or, or be important in that sense and you need better data of course is the industry then ready to let's say move on and, and go forward or they said, ah but the investments in oil and gas with uh, what's happening ah it's difficult to do any r&d and new solutions do we have to unlock something there uh, on the
1: contrary, I think it will facilitate, facilitate the, the R&D work, because if you go in, in the process, you go into the operation and say that, okay, here yeah, we have implemented the, the sensor technology, we have better understanding of the process, then there will be a need to understand the basics. What are we really doing and how how can that influence, for instance, the chemistry, the improvements of the chemistry. And nowadays, when everyone is speaking about the quality and the environment, it's very important that we can show that by applying this technology, we, we get a better, safer process. Exactly. It's not It's not always just the money. I think we well, must rethink there. We must think more and more about where the process is, how it's harming the environment and so on. That is coming more and more and you can't neglect that.
0: I so fully agree there. Yeah. So I think we, we have a lot of work to do, but I think we're <laughs> on the right course here. Yeah. Well, Mikha,
1: as I used to say, thanks God we are so young. Yeah, oh, yeah, that helps. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I think I mean I gentlemen, I included you too.
2: Yes. I, that's good for that. yeah, that's okay. I, I'm I'm happy to I'm happy to be included in that one as well. Um <laughs> But I think there, there, there is a there has been a shift over the over a period of time, I think, um, towards this anyway. I mean a lot of companies now say that okay, they're not interested in doing R&D, but they want to get more data from other industry peers, other ways of looking at this. So they're not gonna necessarily want to test themselves. Tell me that this works for somewhere else. I'm prepared to give it a go, um, which is something good. And also the fact that you've seen a lot of companies, um, engineering contractors, also oil companies as well, actually out looking for new technologies. And that's, you know, I don't know if it's been the low oil price or it's been the fact that everyone's been working remotely. But We certainly see more people interested in talking about new technology than probably I've seen in the last, you know five, ten years, because people just weren't up to that point. Now we've got stuff that works, it'll work, it'll fine, we'll, we'll stick with what we've got. Unless you've got something which is really groundbreaking, earth-shattering, then we're not going to go and do it. Um, and obviously that is, you know, a, a challenge if you have something new and you need to get it into the marketplace. But I think in the last couple of years, there's been a lot more people looking for alternatives. What else is out there?
1: Yeah, and they I, must.
2: They have. And I think that's the discussion we had with Eric, and the fact is that also that this crossover between other technologies and other
1: industries. One one question that I think is, is central in the future, if you look in the past, what has been the, uh, the performance is that each oil company is very protective with what they are doing. It's their property, it's their mind and, and so on. I think this must change. In the future, I think the companies must more and more co- uh, collaborate we must come have joint events, uh, invest um, together in, uh, in new technology, see it to build up and then implement it. Uh, we must, I think, the, the thinking and the mentality must change. Yes. yeah, I think yeah. definitely the mentality
2: needs to change. I think you've seen that in a, in a few companies where they seem to go into more joint venture type things, particularly on developments, but also you see that where you end up with technology transfer. We have key advisors come in to work on particular projects or in particular areas to help provide some sort of technical expertise rather than staying out, because if you look at most of the oil companies now, a lot of the technical expertise that they've had over the years, and a little bit it left, and they're rebuilding it. But again, it goes back to this knowledge transfer part. So they're having to build it up quickly. And part of doing that is not just do it in-house, doing it working with others. And that has really been um, really quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still a risk-adverse industry. Um, unfortunately, as I've said before, if, we, if it's a downhole, if it's a new widget that you've got for the end of a drill string, somebody will try it tomorrow. Something in the upstream process inside, they'll go, oh, let me have a think about it, first of all. you know. And it's one of those areas that we, we're always going to have that slight conservatism in terms of what we do. But I think once people start to see the data and see the benefit of it, I think then they're going to start going, OK, actually, this can help. But it's going to open up other challenges for them once they start to see the data okay, we've got this data, what do we do with it?
1: What is is interesting also, James, is that uh, recently we have seen that Saudi Aramco have uh, announced that they are going to invest 900 billion Mm -hmm. Norwegian crowns in new technology in uh, (coughs) more environmentally Mm -hmm. friendly uh, processes and so on. And I mean, this will have a spin-off on other companies. They will also invest... They can't. They say we can't just leave behind here. Now the train is leaving. We yeah. must. We must jump on. Yeah. So I yeah. think that is going to be interesting, and and to see what kind of coalitions there will be in the in the in, in the near future.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think some of the big national companies, the Saudi Aramco, when you're talking about them, I mean, I think they have really had. I mean, they went through an insular period. They had a lot of external support. Then they went to a more insular looking at it, saying, right, this is what we're going to do. Here's our standard design, here's our standard systems. We're going to work on these ones. And then they've gone, okay, that's not actually working everywhere. Let's try and do something else. And they really have branched out, looking for technology, you know, out searching for stuff, looking for different areas and investing in other parts of the world to try and understand what's going on. And they've done that with their people and personnel as well. So for them, it's been it's been a journey, but it's they've a journey which they've consciously gone down and done a few other companies haven't done that yet but it'll be interesting to see how they take this on board because everyone's watching Saudi Aramco is the biggest one around um and obviously with Saudi Aramco with its support you know its, its potential for it to spin off and to become a you know to sell parts of itself into the commercial marketplace they need to um do something in terms of just producing more not producing more but producing better I think is the way they want to do so yeah
1: and that's that what you say, James, is also uh, a new question, is uh, how do we refine the oil? I mean, are we too conservative in just looking at the oil value as a, as a value of diesel and, and gasoline? Should we perhaps extract some more valuable chemicals from the oil, perhaps even in, in smaller amounts? Yes, but considerably higher prices. Yes. That was something that in, in Scandinavia, you know, we, we have a tradition of being strong in pulp and paper. And um, let's say back in the 80s, back in the 70s, there was one fixed idea and that was wood is for paper. Yes, the only thing we should do, we should do paper. And now that if you look at the, the, the situation but today, the market for a paper is, is, is not that high, no. which means that... Uh, all other kinds of uh, uh, chemicals, like nanocellulose and so on, mm-hmm. is is very is very popular to see what we can do with it. And yeah. I think that is this is coming to the to the oil sector too.
2: I think that is one of the things that's gonna. There's definitely going to be a game changer as well when we start being less reliant on it producing just for fuel. The fact is, other things we can extract from the oil and gas. Yes. And that's what we're really going to see benefits here. I mean, I know that we we always talk about the fact it's only a certain percentage from a barrel of oil actually goes to fuel, the rest goes to other products. And those other products, if you look at the costs or those products or the benefits of those products for the for the world or the the return you're going to get on them is far, far higher than we're currently extracting. So I think definitely that is something that will be. And that's why no matter what people think about you know fossil fuels for cars, etc trained whatever we're still going to rely on some of this for other materials that we want
0: to use there are no synthetic options at the moment no uh, no so yeah but i, I think uh, what happens of course we're moving from that flintstone era moving forward we see that we have to apply technology data and also collaborate to innovate open innovation as such so i think it's looking really interesting exciting Kay. For the future in that sense what we can achieve and create actually so um gentlemen it's been a pleasure talking with both of you i i enjoyed this very much
1: thank you thank you for inviting us
2: yeah absolutely thank you thank you for everything it's great have a great weekend everybody and uh, yeah you too it's fun thank you
1: yep